Welcome, welcome to Friends Church. If you're here for the first time, we want to welcome you. Hopefully this is, uh, isn't too nerve-wracking and too painful. And welcome to Spiritual Gym. Look at I want to just give you a little bit of a heads up about um, a series that's coming up in two weeks. So we're doing a two-part starting today, today and next week. And then following that, we're doing something called the Fruit of the Spiritual Life. And, uh, you know, if you've been following along over the last couple months, we've been talking a lot about finding the motivation to do this thing called the spiritual journey. It's one thing to say, yeah, I, I want this. I want to live in a different way. It's another thing to be able to actually follow through and do it. So we've been talking about motivation, but like, what is this supposed to be achieving? Well, that's where this fruit of the spiritual life is really going to come in. Like, what are we building? What is it going to look like in our lives, in our world? Um, you know, there's one of the heavyweights of the Bible. He said, he likened kind of the, the result of the spiritual journey to fruit. He said, you do this thing. You do this thing right, and what ends up happening is you produce something in you that affects those around you. And he called it fruit, fruit of the Spirit. Jesus even referred to that when people were coming to him saying, look at we don't know who to trust. There's a lot of people going around teaching things. Who are the right ones? Who are the false teachers? Who are the... And he, he just said, well, watch their lives. Because a bad tree cannot produce good fruit. While... Um, a good tree can't produce bad fruit. So just watch how they live. So we're going to spend a number of weeks talking about that specifically, what this looks like in us. And uh, I'm really excited about it. I think, again, it's just giving language and handles to understanding why you're doing this thing called the spiritual journey, what it's leading to. And uh, I think you'll agree when we're done. This is something that's very worthwhile putting some horsepower into. Kelty. Hey, good morning. My name is Kelty, and this is the part of our service we call Charitable Giving. It's an opportunity for me to share with you um, some of the great ways that you can give back to the church and help support the church. And also thank you for those of you who I know are signed up to PAG, uh, pre-authorized giving, or who are routine givers to um, help support the church. So today I can walk you through a little bit about if you have not signed up or if you're interested in a one-time gift, um, but like me, don't carry cash and want to just do that through the, the value of your phone, you can go right onto our website. There's a link that you can click to that says donate and it'll allow you to sign up. Um, you can either do that as a one-time, like I said, or you can do that on an ongoing basis, which helps us figure out how we can run our budget, making sure we have enough to manage things like Sunday morning services, um, ensuring that we can cover all of the costs and expenses of running a church. Uh, so thank you so much if you are already donating that way or if you are adding that to your list today. I have other ways that you can give to the church today, too, to share with you. One, I see a whole bunch of you already have big brown paper bags um, from uh, stopping in the lobby on your way in this morning and supporting the bake sale that's being run by our teens through Switch. That is to support Ukraine. They will be back out there afterwards. I just popped my head out. They still have uh, key lime pies and black and white cupcakes and a few loaves of bread. So if you miss them on your way in, don't worry. They'll catch you on your way back out. 
Um, and you can give that through, their, they will take cash, they have a square that they will take, and you can also do that also through our app. If all of this chat about how you can donate financially is somewhat stressful, because maybe this isn't the right time for you, you're not in that season where you have extra money that you can donate to the church, that is okay. I have another option for you this morning. So we have a casino that's coming up in May, May 27th and 28th, um, that we are running that will help support the church and help give us some extra cash to make sure that we can hit all of our expenses. We have six spots still available for volunteers to assist us with that. No experience required. Um, If you would like to donate your time, it's equivalent to about $1,800. So one shift of donation of your time at the casino is worth about $1,800 to the church. And so if that's interesting to you, please take a look on our website. There's a link there that you can sign up, I think. Yeah? Yeah. That's where you can go to. Um, And there's six spots still available. So we would love your help to make sure that we can properly fill all those spots and uh, meet our obligations on that casino. One last thing, if you're here this morning and you're planning on joining the discussion group after the church, they'll be meeting in the library, which is just down the hall to the right as you leave the church. Otherwise, sit back and enjoy the rest of your morning. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kelty. I've already availed myself to some of the baking, and uh, it will be waiting for me. I'm not going to tell you where my baking is. I do not want that bag to go missing, but I have plans after this service. This is great. Uh, So proud of all the Switch students and perhaps parents that have been guiding in the baking process. That stuff is looking good out there. It's awesome. It's great to see kids take initiative to raise funds for people who are suffering on another part of the world. Um, All right. So, hey, years ago, this wasn't long after we started Friends Church, maybe a couple years after. So, like, this is about 20 years ago. I, uh, I, was, I had a guy, a young guy, who was part of the community reach out to me. He wanted to have coffee. And um, so we got together. He was early, mid-20s. And uh, we got together, and I could tell, as soon as I sat down with him, he was very uncomfortable. And, like, just awkward. I'm looking at him, I'm going, look, are you okay? And he's like, oh, I just... I need to talk to you about something. And, and I said, you, that's what's, are you, are you nervous about that? He's like, I'm, I don't know how to really bring this up. He started telling me he had a dark side, a sinful secret that he hadn't been able to tell anyone. And he told me that he had been praying to God that God could forgive him and help him overcome this problem. And I was like, holy crap, what? Did, I, I wasn't sure where he was going with this, but I was like, oh. And like, I said, well, what's happening? Like, I wasn't sure, like, he... If he was going to admit to some kind of murder, I, I didn't know if I needed to say, look, it. you admit to any kind of criminal activity. I cannot keep this your secret, you know? Like, I was about to give that speech. <laughs> I was like, oh. He said, uh, I'm struggling with masturbation, Jeff. Okay. I have to admit, I was rather relieved at the moment. I was like, 
that's the secret? Okay. Okay. He's like, I, I know it's wrong. I know it's going to ruin my chances for a healthy marriage. And I've been reading a book that says I need an accountability partner. I need someone to help me overcome this. And I'm wondering if that's something you could help me with. I said, well, I'm not sure how that would work. But I said, are you, are you sure? Are you sure that God hates masturbation? Are you sure that that's going to ruin your chances for a healthy marriage? I just remember just asking those questions. Like, how are you so sure about this, pal? And he, the look that he gave me when I just asked those questions was like, don't tell me you don't understand. Don't tell me you don't believe these things. He looked at me like I was, like he was so surprised that I would even question what he was saying. Now, I grew up in a, in a similar kind of church tradition as, I'll call him Steve. I was familiar with where he was coming from. I mean, in the tradition that I grew up, they weren't really talking a lot about sex. It was kind of like sexual desire, like definitely not masturbation. No way. Like that was the M word, man. That didn't come up unless something really bad had gone down. But no, like it was never brought up. Every once in a while, some church leader would maybe stand up and would rail on the dangers of some of the modern sexuality that they were seeing on the TV. I remember one guy railing against Three's Company one year. It was a show on TV. How many remember Three's Company? That was my dirty little secret. Love that show. But... I could never watch it if mom was around, you know, it was kind of like, you know, I was, we didn't have a remote control, you had to run to the TV and change the channel, but for the most part in, in the circles I was raised in, unless you were in a heterosexual, monogamous, married relationship, sex, sexual desire, sexual pleasure, was kind of an offside conversation. It was sinful. It was a sinful pleasure you know, like, it might feel good, but it was definitely wrong. So as Steve was explaining his internal torment about his forbidden masturbation um, and sexual pleasure that he had been engaging in, I felt for him. Like, the only difference really between me and him was I was married. I mean... I, I fell into the right category now. I could have sex. I didn't have to f- feel guilty about anything I was doing with my wife. Here he was, this young, normal, unmarried guy whose hormones are raging. What's he supposed to do? That day I tried to get him to go easy on himself. I told him he wasn't some sexual deviant. Um, 
that he wasn't spiritually backsliding. These were some of the terms and jargon that was used in our circles at that time. It's like he was, God was angry. God was pissed off at him. I tried to tell him, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not certain that that's even a thing. And I don't know where, you, where we even got this. But I'm not, like I just felt, I could see the shame in him. But, you know, I just said, you're a young a young and old guy, and you're horny. That, that, that's normal, pal. But he didn't, he didn't like me saying that stuff. In fact, that made him very suspicious of me. It's like he thought I was some kind of agent of the devil that was justifying his sin. I'm just like, buddy, I'm, I, I, I'm just trying to help you. And he's like, no. He was so determined to hold on to that toxic shame and self-hatred like it was some badge of honor, some kind of penance to appease an angry God. You know, Steve was one story. But the truth is, in my line of work, I end up chatting with a lot of people. And over the years, I've had some really difficult conversations. I remember a friend coming out, married, great guy, kids, kids that were the same age as me, my kids. I remember one time him pulling me aside. We're at a football practice. He said, Jeff, can I talk to you? We're a group of guys. I said, sure. Sit down. He says, no, can we go over here? He said, Jeff, I'm gay. I said, okay, okay. Like I was shocked, but I'm like, it's all right. It's okay. He's like, it's not okay. I said, no. I didn't know what to say, but at that point in my journey, I'm like going, you don't, you don't have to feel shame. We can, we can figure this out. As soon as he sensed that I was, I don't know what he was wanting me to tell him. Like for me to just beat him up verbally or what? But I said, it's all right, man. We're going to figure this at that point, he pushed me away. It's like he wanted to hold on to this shame for what he was doing. Didn't want anyone telling him it was okay. Like, the conversations that I've had with some different ones, people who opened up about their use of porn, friends who talked about their sexual exploits, unprotected sex they had, regrets they had before they were married, people they were attracted to while they were married. Like they've shared different stories and it's like these dark secrets they hold with no one they feel they can talk to. And internally they're in a world of pain. There's just so many parts of our sexual lives that often are tormenting us. And we, we have this deep sense that something is broken or wrong. But it is so, it, comes, it can feel so dirty for some that it just stays hidden in the recesses of their lives. Unable to reconcile what they want with what they feel they want, what they believe is right with what deep down inside they're craving. You may not hold the same beliefs as Steve, 
but I'm betting there is some part of your own sexual life or experience or beliefs that perhaps hasn't served you well. I'm betting. If not, you're one of a minority, and I want to congratulate you. If you're going to sit, you know, be here this morning, maybe you're listening to the podcast or live stream, and you're like going, no, I have zero issues. Well, <laughs> I envy you. Because if, if I'm really honest, I'm still working out and processing some of the stuff that I grew up with. And so part of what I'm going to share this morning probably is tainted through that lens. I have strong feelings about certain things that I grew up with or that I was taught. And I'm still trying to unpackage them and go, wait, what? I don't know if I... So you might hear me kind of accidentally referencing some belief that I struggle with right now. I have no answers in terms of what is right or wrong specifically. I have my experience and stuff that I've witnessed and watched. So I'm just going to offer that up as a caveat, all right? You don't agree with something I'm saying? Hey, great. Hold on to it. If it's serving you well, great. I just want to talk. I want to get out some of the stuff out in the open so we can just at least think deeply about what it is that we believe about some of this stuff. I mean, chances are, without you even realizing it, maybe you weren't raised in a religious upbringing. And yet... Maybe you feel uneasy when the discussion of sex comes up. Maybe your kid says, hey, dad, Johnny was calling his penis something this week. Is that all right? Uh, talk to your mother. I, I, like, uh, right? How many of us ever felt uncomfortable talking about sex with our parents? Maybe with our kids, even when other couples, you're sitting around and you know the topic comes up. It's like <laughs> switching subjects, sitting in in the living room watching a movie, and all of a sudden a big hot sex scene comes on, and you're looking around going, "I don't feel comfortable with you in the room here watching this too, kid." Do you ever feel guilty just trying to limit your sexual expression, filtering? tempering your words when certain people are around. You know, it's like you say these things behind closed doors, but now you got a whole different persona you put out out here. Do you ever feel discomfort around nudity? I hear people talking about, oh, those nude beaches in Europe. Can you believe that? Hmm. Even talking about your own sexual organs and body parts. Penis, vagina, Clitoris. <laughs> Orgasm. Climax. Those words do not belong in church, Jeff. <laughs> yeah, you know what I'm talking about. I don't think we realize just how much sex is seen as our dirty little secret in society, whether you're religious or not. And yet it's a big part of society. The question I keep asking is why? Why is it our dirty little secret? Who told us this? Why is it so shameful? Seen as something insidious or dark? Who told us that? And who told them? Where did this originate from? 
Where did these perspectives and beliefs that have made sex such an awkward part of our lives, like, where did, who decides what kind of sexuality and expressions of sexuality should be normal, which aren't? Like, this is, this is needing to be talked about because there are people who think they are not normal for feeling certain ways or expressing sexuality in certain ways. Someone's come along and said, no, this is normal. This isn't, this isn't, this isn't. And I'm just here to say that I think there's been some people at the wheel shouldn't have been deciding some of this stuff. It's causing a lot of problems. At Friends Church, if we're going to have, if we really believe that the spiritual journey is, is a movement toward fully integrated selves, my, healthy minds, bodies, spirits. We need to get straight on our sexual lives. We need sexually healthy perspectives that work for us. But in order to get there, sometimes we need to go back away. So they say in order to figure out where we're going, we need to know where we've been. And so that's really my role this morning, is to talk about perhaps some unhealthy, some sources of, that have shaped our sexuality, especially within religious circles. Now, I can't speak to every religion out there, every culture, but I can, I can speak to the Christian culture and some Christian history where I think there have been some voices that have spoken very loudly that have influenced the way we have talked about church or dealt with sex in the church. That's what I want to do this morning. If you're going to start anywhere, you've got to start with the early church fathers. These were like the heavyweights. They wrote a lot about theology. Much of their theology is still being taught in churches today. In the second century, a guy named Tertullian, he claimed that he would prefer the extinction of humankind over the evils of sexual intercourse. Can I repeat that? <laughs> you, would, you prefer human extinction over the evils of sexual intercourse. Pal, I gotta tell you something, you're missing out. Okay, no. Uh, his counterpart, Origen, was so convinced of the evils of sexual intercourse that he took a knife and he castrated himself. These are guys that were considered theology heavyweights, writing and influencing the church into what they should be believing about God and life, the world around them. Jerome, 5th century, when he had a sexual desire or thought, he adopted a practice of throwing himself on a thorn bush to overwhelm himself with pain. This was his, his brain hack to teach himself that when he had an impure thought... He associated pain with it. He was way ahead of everyone. Hack, brain hacks. <laughs> Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation, he said intercourse is never without sin. Why were they so against sin or sex? Why did they see it as something so evil? Was it passages in the Bible that influenced this? Was it that they were simply reading the Bible and saying, this is what the Bible is telling us? Oh, sure, there are passages that warn of misguided and uncontrollable sexual appetites. Yep. But I got to tell you, 
for every one of those, there are many stories and passages in the Bible that speak of sex and sexuality in a very positive, very even non-traditional way that we would even understand it today. You know, the one man, one woman in a marriage, monogamous, heter, you know, heterosexual kind of context. Let me just explain some of the complexity when you start looking into the Bible. I mean, you just start in the Song of Songs, also known as the Song of Solomon. I mean, this is an erotic poem in the Bible. There's one part, a woman is, is telling this story, and actually it's the dialogue between a woman and her lover. She says, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. He responds by saying, I come to my garden. I eat my honeycomb with my honey. Open to me, my love, my dove, my perfect one. She responds, my beloved thrust his hand into the opening in my inmost being yearned for him. But then, he's, he, for some reason in the story, he withdraws, and, and now she's left lamenting. She says, I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and was gone. When you read what scholars have to say just about this passage alone, they say this speaks of an erotic desire that is postponed and then fulfilled and then postponed again. Vivid, just vivid sexual language between two lovers. I could go on. Song of Solomon has some great stuff. But let's leave that for a second. What about the story of Ruth? Single woman. She's poor. Her and her mom, she's trying to figure out a way for them to survive, to be a single woman in that day and age. Very difficult. So she seduces Boaz. The word was she uncovered his feet, which was a Hebrew euphemism for uncovering a man's genitals. If you said, oh, she uncovered his feet, back in that day, they would go. So she sleeps with them. They're not married. She sleeps with them. And in doing so, she secures, because Boaz was a wealthy guy. All of a sudden, she secures survival for her and her mom and her family. And the Bible praises her for it, hails her as a hero. Says, that a girl, Ruth? Well done. Wait a second. You could read of the love of Jonathan that he had toward David. Been a lot of things written about that, a friendship so strong that Jonathan comes to love David more than he loves women. Oh, there's some people that would say, oh, no, 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 I can explain that. Okay, that's fine. There are many different ways of looking at that kind of love. In these biblical passages, though, regardless of your interpretation, you will find expressions of sexual longing and fulfillment, relationships that aren't necessarily limited to just one husband and one wife, or even between a man and a woman but it's definitely not presented as something evil and dirty. I mean, it, it could get really even more complicated. I mean, really, in Matthew, 
Jesus describes a sexuality where people are living like eunuchs, like they have been castrated. They have no sexual appetite. He's like, hey, if that works for you, great. You don't, you don't feel sexual attraction for other people? You don't get involved in a sexual relationship? Great. If it works for you, fill your boots. You just see all kinds of different sexual expression within the Bible. When someone tells me that the Bible makes it very clear what a healthy sexual life looks like, I go, really? Which part is clear? The many wives that everyone had in the Old Testament, and the concubines. Like, let's just go through all the different ways that this has looked. I'm not sure what is clear about what healthy sexuality looks like if you just go, well, the Bible says. The Bible says a lot of things. I say all that to say that our early church fathers, wherever they got their real negative view of sex and sexuality. I don't think that they got that from the Bible. In fact, experts have been talking a lot about this. They think that many of the early church fathers were heavily influenced by the the most popular philosophies of their day that were very prevalent in their culture. They point to three real big daddy philosophies that were like, forget the church. This was like being kind of spread far and wide in in their society at that time. One believed that our souls and minds are at war with our bodies. This was the dualism that Plato spoke of. Your body is craving all these sexual things and your mind and your soul is at war with it. Be careful. Don't let your body win that war. Another philosophy believed that nothing should be done for the sake of pleasure. That was the Stoic philosophy of the Greco-Roman culture. The last of the three big philosophies that was, they think was very influential on the early church fathers was one that believed that demons actually created the world. Demons created sex and your body and your soul was trapped in your body. The only way that you could free your soul to experience the divine was to be able to deny your flesh anything that your body was craving. This was a popular belief known as Gnosticism. They think that within three centuries after Jesus, the early church fathers, the early Christian thinkers were fully seduced by these philosophies. And it was it led to just a rampant rejection of sexuality, human sexuality and pleasure. It's like, don't do this. They think this is when sex got off on a bad note, became very dirty. You fast forward that now about 400 years and you come up to a guy named Martin Luther we see these philosophies, or sorry, 400 years after Luther, and we see these philosophies alive and well. You hit the Victorian era. If you guys have studied history, you know this was a harsh time of restraint on sexuality, especially for women. Man, they were locking up their daughters, keeping them in the houses. I mean, the only women deemed 
worthy of marriage were the virgins, those who had abstained from sexual activity. It was weird. It was like such an ironic time because at that time, like England, London, 1887, they estimated the population about 2.4 million. In a city of 2.4 million, they estimated that there were 80,000 prostitutes. 80,000, 3% of the population were prostitutes. So in a day and age of such incredible restraint, you had this flip side, this dark underbelly, where there's rampant, it was just this weird contradiction, belief and yet practice. Even marital sex in this era was seen as a shameful necessity to married life. Sexual repression abounding and yet (laughs) prostitution flourishing. Yeah, crazy, bizarre and confusing. Fast forward another hundred years and there was another development that experts seem to think really fueled a real difficult, awkward view of sexuality. And that was something known as the purity movement. Anyone ever familiar, heard of the purity movement? Maybe if you've been around in evangelical circles, yeah, see those hands. Um, It was a campaign called True Love Waits. Um, I was a youth pastor at the time in the 90s. And this thing started sweeping the country, especially the States, but it came up into Canada. Uh, an international Christian group that was promoting sexual abstinence outside of marriage. All the parents were applauding this, like this was the greatest thing that could have ever happened. It was uh, created by the Southern Baptists, actually, um, based on this conservative view of human sexuality that would require one to remain sexually abstinent until married. So students were asked to make a pledge. The pledge was this, believing that true love waits, I make a commitment to God, myself, my family, my friends, my future mate, and to my future children, to be sexually abstinent from this day until the day I enter into a biblical marriage relationship. That was the pledge you made. But there was also some other things that you were pledging to. You were pledging to abstain not just from sex, but from sexual thoughts, sexual touching, pornography. Like they were closing up all the, <laughs> all, all the little, you know, workarounds that kids were figuring out, you know. It's like, no, you can't do porn, can't sexual touch, can't. And like anything that leads to sexual arousal, no. It's bad. Sign off. Well, this campaign took off. By the late 1990s, there were rock bands touring the country, promoting this stuff. The big guys, the Catholics, got on board. Huge. Assembly of God. These were big denominations representing hunts. In fact, they estimated that 2.5 million students had taken the pledge within about a five-year period. This thing was cooking with gas. Even Britney Spears took the pledge. I don't know if you heard that story. That's another day. Anyways, she was dating Justin Timberlake at the time. That was big news. By 2004, though, the movement had petered out, leaving some stuff behind that just 
didn't seem healthy. And to be honest, as a, as a pastor, I'm still mopping up some of the carnage from that scenario, from this campaign. I'll go into that in a moment. I'm no expert on human sexuality, not claiming to be. I'm, like I said, I'm still recovering from some of my own journey around sexuality and what I grew up believing or thinking within the church. But you hear enough stories, you watch enough conversations go down, enough people open up. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to observe that some of these things that have been believed and said and promoted, especially within the Christian realm, have not led to, to healthy forms of sexuality. Something, something has gone squirrely. And I, I just want to share a couple observations. One is something really goes squirrely when we move into this act of sexual repression sexual repression, where we start trying to keep things under the wrap, forcing, you sign a pledge, no, you, you make a commitment, you're not going to do this. And so you, you, you try to control behavior with this sense of that is bad, that is wrong, that is, you're not allowed to, we don't talk about that. I mean, in what world does that work? You tell a kid, don't go into that room. Don't touch that hot burner. Don't stick your tongue on that cold piece of pipe. <laughs> like, you name it. Don't, don't, you're not allowed. Adam and Eve, don't you eat that fruit. What fruit? Right? It is the human condition. You're not allowed. You rope something off like that, and what happens? Mm, me want me want. I don't even know what it is, but I think I want it. <laughs> we try to control behavior by guilting and shaming and creating fear instead of us just just being honest. We diminish this stuff. We, tr- we try to rope it off and make it seem like it's just this dirty thing, hoping that hopefully we'll be able to deny that natural wiring that's deep within us. That creates all kinds of weirdness. Repression of any sort seems to give incredible power to something inside. One only has to look to the Catholic history that we are watching, the horrors that we're, we're witnessing day in and day out around this belief of celibate, uh, this is sounding judge. I, I, I don't know how you explain what went down there and what is continuing to go down there. When you're looking at a bunch of ministers and saying, you're denied, you're to deny anything you got going inside you. It may work short term. Long term, you try to bottle up that sexual energy and desire. You rope it off and you call it dirty. And you watch what happens. Another observation of the consequences of these lasting philosophies is the amount of sexual shame 
that it's generated, especially in women. Women have been targeted as kind of the temptresses again and again, especially within religious communities. We were down in the States one Easter, actually. Kathy and I, visiting family, we're getting ready to go to church one Sunday morning. I don't usually go to church when I'm on holidays, but my parents had a church, and they're all going, so we said, oh, let's go. We get dressed up, and it was Sunday morning. We were still in the house before we were leaving, and Kathy goes in the kitchen. She's talking with my mom, and I'm getting ready. Kathy comes in. She goes, oh, I got to change. I said, why? She goes, your mom thinks this dress is a little too revealing. That's a sundress. I Really? She goes, yeah. I was like, what's that dress going to do? Like, what, like, wait, what? And yet, it was just a reminder, oh, yeah. Because if you show any skin, you might cause someone, some guy in that room to stumble. You might cause them to sin sexually by... Er, You better cover. I was like, whoa, wow, okay. So I gotta I gotta hide myself. I gotta I'm worried about what what kind of monsters are looking around and what they might be thinking. If you look around Maybe you don't have to look around. Maybe you have your own story, something that's gone down in your own life where you're just going, I I feel broken in some way because this happened. Maybe you're like Steve, man, I've had a problem with masturbation. Maybe it was premarital sex. Maybe you had sex before marriage and you're always told, you do that. Damaged goods. God can't bless a marriage. Maybe there was an unwed pregnancy. Maybe, maybe, maybe you recognize you're not straight. That you don't have the accepted orientation. You need to deal with all the shame that was involved when you shared your secret with people that didn't accept that. Think about kids I've talked to who have been reprimanded by their parents because their parents discovered porn on the computer. Parents freaked out. Now the kid is not just embarrassed, but isn't sure what to do with just the mess. Mom's looking at him like he's some kind of pervert. But this, this is just everyday stuff. The sexual shame that people are living with, it's just dark. Will that sexual shame just evaporate? Like you just walk into a new relationship and that just like somehow goes away? Do you just get married and all of a sudden anything, all that baggage from that's happened just automatically disappears? There's people that are in counseling after being married for 20 years because stuff got said to them before they even got married. They're still working out why they feel guilty or shame or uncomfortable. Why can't even just be an open conversation? Like, it's just, it's, it's something wrong here. 
and I think this needs to be examined. I think we need to look at it and go, wait a second, how, why do I feel this way? What, what does a healthy sexual life look like? How do we talk about this with our kids? With friends? How do we talk about this with our intimate partners? What is normal? Is there a normal? More and more I'm leaning away from these cookie cutters descriptions of what healthy sexuality looks like. Like anytime someone says, oh yeah, well this is what, I go, really? Just wait. Instead, I feel like we need to start asking a different set of questions. Not just with ourselves, but with our partners, with our kids. You know, my boys are now in their 20s. They're involved in relationships. And man, I tell you, we're having conversations that are scaring the hell out of me. But I wished I would have had these conversations with my parents. Questions like, is what you're doing hurting somebody else? Simple question. Am I, is, is what you're doing here using somebody else for your own pleasure? Am I, is, is my sexual expression a form of numbing my own experiences of pain? There's some people that are running headlong into sexual adventures, not because it's a healthy thing, but because there is a deep pain in their lives and it's one way of medicating. Is that going on? Is this just boredom? Is this something that you're engaging in because <laughs> you got nothing better to do? And so now you're using people, you're engaging in behaviors to compensate for maybe a lack of meaning in your life or something else going on. Am I just alone? So I'm acting in a way sexually that helps me feel less alone. Maybe that goes back to using someone. Like, I think if we could just break away from some of the containers that we've had and start looking very objectively at what we're using our sex and sexuality for, it might lead to healthier forms of sexuality. It gets rid of the right and wrong categories and more to, is this healthy? Is it healthy for you? Is it healthy for the other person? Or what, what is this? I think this might be the, our road out. Our way into an experience of sex and sexuality that really leads to good things. Pleasures of, of really great nature. Let me ask you something. Are there messages from your upbringing that you have embraced knowingly or unknowingly, subconsciously, that have shaped your sexuality in a way that hasn't been helpful? Are there beliefs you've maybe inherited even that need reevaluation, that need greater scrutiny? Need someone saying, wait a second, where did that come from? Who told you that? Who told me that? No matter what your background, 
or how much exposure you've had to what may be problematic sexual beliefs or practices. You can restore, start restoring yourself. You can start putting back pieces by asking some of these different kinds of questions. There are a number of different podcasts that I've been listening to that I found just incredibly enlightening. There's some different reading material that I just think, oh man, everyone who, who is struggling in their sexual lives needs to read this. I'm going to put them in the show notes this week. I'm not here to tell you what to believe about sex in your sexual life. I'm just here to ask you, is it working? Is it really working? Because if not, I'm telling you, why, why would you just be happy with that? Do some work. Wrestle. Explore. May you this week be willing to re-examine what sexual health means to you. May you have the courage to confront the pieces that maybe you've embraced that aren't serving you well. If you have kids, I pray that your work will pay off in the long run for them too. That's my prayer for all of us this week. Next week, Vince is going to come back. He's talking about figuring out your own unique sexual style and preferences. Did you know that you do have a particular style? (laughs) This is going to get great. He's, uh, I say, why not talk about this in the church? Huh? This is as much a part of your life as anything we'll talk about, I believe. Or it's at least something you're going to wrestle with as much as anything else. So anyways, join us next week, part two. All right? If you're brave enough, show up. Otherwise, you can be a coward, stay at home, listen to the podcast. But that's not as much fun. All right? Have a great week, everyone.